Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep. Who destroyed the Earth? By Robert Wolf Emmett. This is first published in Maclean's Magazine, January first, nineteen fifty-five, and never published again. Um, I'd not heard of this Robert Wolf Emmett guy, uh, but he writes a nice story, and uh, it has some beautiful illustrations. Uh, we're going to recommend everybody go to the website, download the PDF, or just go to the Maclean's website where you can read the full text there. Uh, the version we've got is straight out of the magazine, so it's a little harder to read, some faded images. But we do have uh, two-tone color art, and uh, this story deserves to be read. I think it's it's um, it's super gentle at what it does. Uh, it's a pioneer in certain senses, and um, I think I think it's worthy of our attention. I agree. It's worthy of our attention. I'll be interested to find out what you mean about its pioneering status. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a, I think it's, a, it's a important to remember that it's a 1955 story because lots of stuff that is supposedly subtle in it um, is subtle in 1955 and self-evident uh, here in the 21st mm -hmm. century. Um, I never found out anything else about this Robert Wolf Emmett. Have you? I think I did some mini investigations and didn't come up with much. Um, I can reconstruct that while you uh, read the opening, if you like. Sure, and then I'll sort of give a summary of the story. Sounds Who good. destroyed the Earth? The fat little spaceship cruised deeper into the newly found solar system, a neat ordinary system with a healthy sun lighting a cluster of nine well-behaved planets and their satellites. Everyone on the ship, from venerable navigator to little food server, stayed as close as possible to the viewing screens. Huge round eyes with lavender pupils stared from gray furry faces. Voices like tiny glass flutes echoed comments and speculations along the gaily painted metal corridors. The third planet was beginning to take shape on the screens. So far, the system had been a great disappointment to the explorers looking for intelligent life. The huge outer planets, far from the busy but smallish sun, had proved to have monstrously thick shells of ammoniated ice and atmospheres of methane fatal to oxygen-breathing creatures like the people of the six worlds. The fourth planet had seemed promising, but turned out to be a sheer ball of red rock, motionless dust, and feeble ground lichens. But the third planet, now swimming into view, was like a vision of home. The story goes on to let us see these cute, short, furry creatures, wide-eyed, um, they look a lot like the appeal one sees in the uh, the pictures of children drawn by Keene or uh, E.T., that big eye, a big head, small body, cute, furry, gaily painted, the sounds of a flute. You know, all of this is just cute, 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 cute. They go and they 
survey the Earth, they are stunned when they see through the screens that this beautiful planet indeed had a civilization. They go to find the civilization, and the civilization has been destroyed. Title question, who destroyed the Earth? This is a 1955 story published in a Canadian magazine, but it clearly follows the the norms of science fiction at the time, which is to say it is New York centric. Mm -hmm. They decide to look for civilization in the biggest metropolis they can find. And sure enough, it's described as having an island in the middle with tall metal towers. These towers are bent. They're rusting. We find out that, uh, that, well, ultimately we find out that there was atomic war, but right away in 1955, you would recognize this as a reaction to uh, the the fact of everyone being afraid of nuclear war. This was the era of duck and cover mm-hmm. in the public schools. Um, but it takes a while for these gentle creatures to realize what was going on. Who destroyed the Earth? They go and they explore. They move away. They move north of the city and come to a mountain which has large metal door, ten times their height, five times ours, it turns Mm. out. Um, They're able to cut through it by redirecting the power of the engines of their uh, space vehicle. Nothing inside. They get to an inner door, and they, it finds out, we find out that this is a repository, they don't know what it means, but we know from what they read, of art from the museum, Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. And they begin to unwrap these works of art. The, the members of the crew are all known by their roles. So there is Navigator, who's clearly the captain. He's the one who sets the course. There is Historian, and she is the one who takes notes of things and tries to understand their cultural significance. There is um, Picture Keeper, mm-hmm. who wears uh, stereoscopic goggles, which when he wiggles his ears, take pictures that can be joined with the notes taken by historian for, historians for the people back at the six worlds. I can't help but think that there is something wonderful about the, uh, the mythology of Native Americans at this time that they are, that they have lived in peace with the world and so on because we have the, the Six Nations mm. of the Iroquois Confederation, mm-hmm. which lived in upstate New York. And, of course, we now know that they weren't you know, just uh, lovely, beatific, uh, <laughs> all naturally. But I think that that's part of the reference of what's going on here. So in upstate New York, they find a mountain. Uh, King Mountain, Storm King Mountain is up there. Um, on the bluff, a bluff overlooking the Hudson River is West Point. And one can easily imagine that there was built the repository for these great works of art. They open it up. They want to know what, what we looked like. But there's still the question of who, uh, who destroyed the earth. Food server is clearly the youngest. He takes the role of cabin boy, and he's always eager and always asking questions. Um, They unwrap the first picture, and uh, it turns out to be, we know because they report the the caption to us, Raphael's mother and Madonna and child. Well, Raphael actually painted uh, 
perhaps two dozen of these. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we don't know which one it is. But um, we get this uh, this very, to me, strange description. They can tell just by looking at the picture that the the woman who has this strange golden glow over her head <laughs> looks down with pride at the baby who also has a strange golden glow over his head and yet with a foreboding of the future. Now, I, I don't know about you, Jesse, but I've looked at a lot of people in the eyes over the decades of my <laughs> life and I've never been able to tell just by looking at their eyes <laughs> that they were both full of pride and foreboding of the future. Well, these creatures are more sensitive than you and I. That's what it is. That's what it is. So they keep looking, and they learn more things. And then Food Server says, um, isn't it possible? Because they were, you know, where are these other creatures? And they, they see what wonderful creatures we were, you know, the our attention to every natural thing, every blade of grass, the wonderful things that we've built. Mm-hmm. Food server, the cabin boy, stood in a corner pondering, isn't it possible, he asked at last, that the great ones might have done it themselves? And this is how it ends. You remember, little one, that all those ships and cars that ran along metal rails were powered by simple ancient combustion engines and all that that destruction, the word was not easy for her, the historian, to say, was from atomic weapons. Now, is it logical that a race with atomic energy would use it for weapons and not for power and production? Food server had to admit that she must be right. He concentrated on seeing what beautiful vision the picture was going to present. They're, he's opening another picture for them. He's standing behind it and unwrapping it. All of the other members of the crew were in front looking at it. But he was not the first to see it. After all, he had to step behind it to lose the wrappings. What he saw was the sudden look of sick horror and disbelief on the faces of the others as the painting came clear. He hurried around to the front and looked. His eyes began to burn, and he knew that there was no need anymore to fear the dreadful enemy. He had been right, but it gave him no satisfaction. He felt hurt, cheated. They all did, their round eyes sad and their very limbs twisted in agony with that bleeding figure nailed to a cross. Yep. So, apparently, apparently that's the answer to the question. We know who destroyed the Earth. It's, it's Earth people, mm-hmm. which makes that poor figure sad, as it does the innocent, uh, and I mean that in the moral sense, crew uh, from the six worlds. Uh, just dumbfounding. Uh, I think this is a story that, that looks simple, but... I may be overreading it, but on reflection, I think it is, uh, in fact, deeply troubling. But I'd like to know what you think, especially <laughs> since you began by saying you think of it as a pioneering story. Yeah, it is pioneering. Um, I will, I will tell you. I, as I remembered correctly, basically, there's almost nothing about Robert Wolf Emmett on the internet. Um, he has one other story, 
um, in Argosy, uh, June 55, so later this year. But that's in the UK version of Argosy, which I do not have access to. Um, and uh, that one's called The Other Enemy. It's a short story like this one. I don't know anything else about it. I don't have, you know, even a little biographical snippet to view. So we don't really know who Robert Wolf Emmett was, other than obviously a very good writer. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is a pioneering story. So one of one of the, uh, I'm pretty sure you introduced me to this story years and years ago. Um, a story by Arthur C. Clarke called The Star. Um, mm-hmm. uh, very terrific story. We've covered it on the podcast. Um, the star came out in 1955, later than this. Uh, in fact, I think November 1955 in a magazine. I'm going by memory. Um, uh, I want to say if, but it's not. <laughs> Anyways, in another magazine. Um, Infinity an, Science. Infinity. Fiction. There we go. So it did have an I and an F in it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Infinity, yes. And um, that's a story about humans traveling to a, another solar system and discovering there had been a great disaster um, in the solar system and that the people, uh, the beings of that solar system, being isolated from many other solar systems, never developed space travel um, beyond their own solar system. And... And seeing that their planet was going to die, they created a, a museum locked in a vault that was um, placed on their version of Pluto on the edge of the solar system. And that having just viewed it, a religious figure who is the uh, uh, scientist um, priest on the ship um, has done some calculations on his, I believe it was a Mark Six computer, and uh, discovered that uh, the star that uh, they visited went nova 2,000 years ago, uh, 2,000 light years ago. And that, therefore, he just says at the end, um, I don't know if I'm going to tell any, or maybe he says at the beginning, I don't know if I'm going to tell anybody, or if they'll believe me, they'll probably dismiss what I have to say. But why, oh, why, God, did you have to sacrifice these people to, for, for the fire to light the way for Jesus? So <laughs> these two stories are kind of telling the same story from a different uh, perspective using our knowledge of space travel that is possible and our knowledge of interstellar distances and time to tell a story of the destruction of planets and the saving of information in the face of that especially art um to say something profound about how we as human beings are capable of destroying ourselves even though it is not in our best interest that story says god did it and that that's very troubling this story says that we did it and that's very troubling Hmm. okay I don't think I don't think Clark read this story. It's very unlikely, given it was published in a Canadian magazine. Um, he may have even written it before this one. I'm pretty sure this is not by Arthur C. Clarke. It it, it flows beautifully, um, and Clarke is capable of that. 
but I don't feel his hands all over it, which I, I think I probably would. No, I don't either. I, I don't have the a copy of The Star with me, but I think if, if memory serves, they're not, they are 3,000 light years from Earth. Um, you you might be right because um, because they it's need set a thousand in a thousand years, years in the, the future or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the light needs to travel back to be the star of Bethlehem. Yeah, um, but um, I'm sure. And this is there, there are other works. Forbidden Planet, the famous movie of 1956, which in some ways looks like an adaptation of The Tempest. That's what mm-hmm. the writers claimed mm-hmm. they were doing. Also gives us an alien museum that gets investigated. Um, the idea of investigating uh, an alien museum um, goes back further, although not in space necessarily. We see uh, in the Time Machine by H.G. Wells, uh, which is in the 1895 edition that we're all familiar with, um, the time traveler goes into a museum in order to learn mm-hmm. about what mm-hmm. has happened between his time and 802701 AD. Uh, this, this use of a museum as a repository to tell a story uh, about other societies, um, it's, it's pretty good. And, and it putting is. it together with religion, also pretty good idea. I'm thinking, though, that it's pioneering, but I think that it's, it's asking, well, it asks me, and maybe I'm over-reading here, Jesse. Um, it asks me something that, uh, that I think Clark doesn't. When Clark says, did you have to destroy that beautiful race to send a message, you know, the star over Bethlehem to announce the birth of your son, mm-hmm. um, he's raising the question of theodicy, right? You know, why is there evil in the world if 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 God is good and all powerful, uh, why why does that happen? And surely the announcement of the birth of a son is is a good thing. But why destroy these these marvelous people mm-hmm. uh, to do it? That's that's the problem of theology, which is a profound problem in, in philosophy. But this story, this story, suggests again and again and again that. The ability to work with nature, to appreciate nature, to understand and therefore manipulate and harness nature. Uh, Look at the way that the story says they could see that it was canvas stretched over a wooden frame with pigment applied to it. The descriptions here Mm. make us understand that there is an appreciation for and utility, a utilization of things that are natural. So you're known not by your name, but by your role. How do you fit into all that is being done? There is a, an almost Rousseauian utopic uh, idea behind, utopian idea behind these people from the six worlds. Therefore, with them, I don't think we're supposed to dismiss their ability to see and understand instantly the meaning of things. They don't know what the, the, the golden light behind the woman and the smaller one it means, but they know that there is this deep and important connection between them and that they are highlighted. They make reference from the very beginning to Star Maker, mm. which I don't know anything about Wolf, but mm-hmm. he may well have known about Olaf Stapleton's very famous book. It was indeed a bestseller in 1937 
when it came out, and it is a, a foundational text of modern science fiction, although not one that gets read by casual fans. It's a <laughs> difficult text. Um, so th there is a deep religiosity here. So therefore, when it gets to the end, he felt hurt, cheated. They all did. Their round eyes and their very limbs twisted in agony with that bleeding figure nailed to a cross. The question is, who destroyed Earth? Well, he did. Mm -hmm. One way of reading that mm -hmm. last line. I see. Why well, did he create people? I mean, he looks like them, but mm. bigger. He looks like the mother and child they've just seen. Yes, they nailed him to a cross, but why did he create them so that they could do that? The problem of theodicy has to do with God's justice. This story has to do with man's responsibility. Are we the way we are because we had no choice? These aliens seem to think that anyone who could harness atomic power surely would have to use it for good. But we're not. And who made us? Hmm. Yeah, it, it doesn't, it doesn't give answers. It doesn't, but it's raising questions that aren't just pleasant. They're not just all wide-eyed and flute-playing mm -hmm. and furry. This isn't E.T. going home, or if it's E.T. going home, he's going home because, oh, crap, he got caught among us. <laughs> but we're not responsible in some way. Maybe. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, there, there's a couple There's a couple of... Uh, uh, there's a, a scene... Where when they're considering what mon <laughs> food server says, um, who's a, a child, says, um, uh, what you told me there was no monsters, <laughs> and then maybe there are monsters, and they're all worried that yes, that's true, and the raising of children is very important. So this is a matter of uh, great importance to the crew of this ship, and. He says the thing that they all fear, but which they scold him for even saying, which is that maybe there were no other monsters. Maybe they did this to themselves. Oh, no, the shocker, right? And it's true. In the story, that's what we did. We somehow have navigated uh, out of total planetary destruction so far. So there's hope in that way. But when they fear that there were some monsters that did this to this planet one of the things they do is they consider destroying themselves not with their own weapons which they do not have but by letting their atomic uh, engines blow themselves up in case they're followed by the horrible monsters that did this to the earth and that is uh, one of the key points of an, another science fiction story, um, First Contact, by Murray Leinster. I think that's, I want to say, 1944, mm -hmm. but it may have been er way earlier than that. Um, it was well earlier than this story. And um, they're out here. They're actually like a crew of the Starship Enterprise. They, you know, they got their role. There's actually a couple other characters you didn't mention. One was Grower, who uh, grows all the food that isn't, isn't canned food service job is to deliver that food and open cans and then there's also a power drive engineer who 
is uh, anxious about the energy depletion when they use their atomic supplies to cut through this door, giant door, uh, ten times their size, right? Um, they cut through a second door using this atomic power. They're used to using atomics uh, in a non-dangerous way. The other thing that's kind of striking about this um, destruction of the Earth is it isn't just um, nuclear uh, detonations that, that cause the destruction of the Earth, but also there's this fungus that is everywhere. And I'm not sure if that was supposed to have meant, like, uh, biological weapons um, as well as atomic weapons. But it's, it's something, and it's not, it's, it, it's not past my attention that they spend so much time talking about, or the author spends so they much use, time on it. They use the word, he, the text uses the word mutation on several occasions. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think we have to think of this as artificial uh, bioweapons. It's so possible, yeah. As, like Godzilla, it was created by the atomic blast. That's entirely which possible. must have happened a long time ago because we're told that the... the uh, the counters didn't show an abnormally high rec- uh, level of that radioactivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I want to again reinforce what you said about how how cute these aliens are. The food server is basically <laughs> our viewpoint character. When we he first speaks, he says, "Will they be like us?" Squeaked food server, stroking his fur, which had s- still the iridescence of childhood. Or will be they? Or will they be horrible monsters? Um, so we can see him stroke, uh, stroking himself to calm himself down, and then later on he asks, "Will they have? Did they have tails?" And you see his tail wrap around his his uh, neck and uh, you know tickle his ear. And it's like these are super cute, right? <laughs> yeah. right? Super duper cute, right? They're full of innocence, as you point out. Um, the text has numerous passages I've highlighted. I'll just read a couple that I think are very interesting. Um, The first is on page 30 in the second column. um, uh, Second paragraph down. starts, This picture thus formed represented a female they knew, that at once holding a baby in her lap. So this is the description that we ultimately find out is Raphael's um, Madonna. Uh, Her face had no fur. She had only five rather stiffly jointed fingers, and her eyes were quite small, but most wonderfully gentle. She wore a white garment caught at the waist with a blue belt and a simple blue cloak. For some reason, probably symbolic, the artist had shown a glowing light around her head, but the real radiance was that of her smile as she looked down at the baby. This not only tells us that, uh, you know, what what we, we... We're reading this on two levels. We're seeing it uh, as for what they're be, what's being described, which is obviously a very specific picture of uh, Mary and Jesus, with all the color details and, and angles of eyes and such, but also how they interpret what they're seeing. And what we're getting is that they're mammals like us, that they have two genders, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a, there's a double empathy going on, and that's really beautiful and i think that that's really what this story is all about it's it's like a mimetic empathy uh test in a certain sense you get the ending uh because you're so with it uh later down later on down the uh, bottom of this uh same column 
uh, second paragraph from the bottom. They had owned a planet abundantly rich in every variety of leaf and creature, and they had loved their planet down to the least blade of grass. Nothing was too small or too trivial for them to recall, nothing too grand for them to make an upreaching try at stating it. Uh, historians knew that, uh, sorry, historian knew that the hidden pictures represented many different ages in racial development, but all the way along there shone the same one spirit, potent, dreamy, inquiring, reverent. So again, this is them understanding us as sort of our ideal version of us. That's terrific writing. And one of the pictures that they discover and never discover the meaning of, but we know, is uh, a miniature of the Taj Mahal, which is a tomb for a princess, giant, beautiful. They know it doesn't exist. I guess they scanned the planet anymore. But we know it exists, and we know it is a legacy through time of a love from long ago. This is a love letter to humanity, and the conclusion is, please don't destroy yourselves. That's pretty good writing. I, I'm very impressed by this story. I'm glad you, you are. I'm glad you got that from it. I, I hear it, and I, I kind of thought that on my first reading, but... Mm-hmm. That passage that you you began reading just a few moments ago, where food server says, "Will they be like us, or will they be horrible monsters?" The very next sentence is so we're still in the very first column of the beginning of the story. The next sentence is the star maker said, "Navigator sternly, fits the form to the place. There are no such things as monsters." Okay then. So if human beings are fit to the place, either their religion is just wrong, <laughs> they just don't understand what Star Maker does, or all of that beauty inherently is monstrous. There is something deeply wrong here. And it is lovely. This is where my this view and what the one you've just expressed sort of come together it's lovely that instead of being angry frustrated confused the crew is sad but that they are sad still indicates if we believe that they have immediate knowledge they really can see things and understand them instantly like foreboding in the eyes of the the mother then they're right. And about us being monsters. And they are right that monsters are this place or they're wrong about God. <laughs> One way or the other, the pillars that we stand on are, I think, shaken by this apparently gentle story. Mm-hmm. I think that's why... I read it once, it meant something. I read it another time, it meant something else. You mm-hmm. spoke of it, and it sounded persuasive to me. I went back and followed up some of those quotations, and it seemed to say something else at the mm-hmm. same time. And therefore, it's yet another example that even stuck away in a cave, 
when we look at something hard enough, there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.